Well, in preparation for the preaching of God's Word, um, we have God's Word read. Our text this morning is Hebrews 13, verses 8 to 14. It is printed for you in your bulletin. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I will read it, and then we will have the preaching of God's Word. Hebrews 13, verses 8 to 14, this is the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our Lord endures forever. It's been a cliche of humanity since at least the ancient Greeks uh, that the only constant thing in life is change. We physically change throughout our lives in very obvious, although sometimes alarming, ways. Over time, our minds also change. We learn, we grow, we develop. Sometimes throughout life, we change and modify our opinions. We might gain experience or insight. We might regret something in our past and choose to go a different way. Our situations change. We make decisions, or we have some circumstance or condition come in that changes everything, sometimes from that moment and then for the rest of our lives. Sometimes change is thrilling. Sometimes change is devastating. But change is, for us, a constant. So what does it mean for us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever? In a life of constant change, what does it matter that Jesus never does? We're going to see from this text how it matters for us. And it must matter for us. It must mean something that at the center of this revolving, shifting, uncertain, changing life, there is this one immutable core. There is an unflinchingly constant presence. There is a perfectly stable person named Jesus. Here's the four things we're going to see from this text. First, because Jesus never changes we can expose devastating change. Second, because Jesus never changes, we can experience liberating change. 
Third, because Jesus never changes, we can endure painful change. And fourth, because Jesus never changes, we can expect glorious change. That is our outline, but first, I want to look at what exactly we're talking about when we say that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And and here's the most important thing for us to understand in order to understand this verse. This is not a statement of Jesus' eternity so much as it is a statement of Jesus' excellency. To put it another way, this is not a quantitative statement so much as a qualitative statement. Now, it's certainly true that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. And as such, has shared the immutable, unchanging, divine nature with the triune God. Father, Son, that's Jesus, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is God, and as such, He possesses that divine attribute of immutability. God is infinite in His perfections, and so if He could change, He would either be getting better, which is impossible, or getting worse, which is unfathomable, And so Jesus, as God, never changes. But is it really divine immutability that's in view here? That was not the view, for instance, of John Calvin on this text. Calvin wrote of this verse that this verse is not speaking of the eternal existence of Christ, but of that knowledge of Him, which was possessed by the godly in all ages and was the perpetual foundation of the church. Calvin concludes, I say he refers to quality, so to speak, and not to essence. This is a verse about how good Jesus is. This is a statement of the surpassing worth and the staggering value and the crowning, glorious, thundering loveliness of Jesus Christ. Hear how it reads when we flow into the next verse. Beginning in verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away. Do you see what he's doing? In coming to Jesus, we have already come to the loftiest heights, and that's not going to change. In coming to Jesus, we've come to the pinnacle, to the summit of all things, and that's not going to change. Look back with me at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. Where have we come? Well, first, where have we not come? We have not come, verse 18 of chapter 12, To what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That is where we have not come. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, 
the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so if here we are at Christ, here we are at Mount Zion's peak. Here we are at the very blood of Jesus. Here we are at Jesus, crucified and risen. From a Savior like this, where else could we go? When you are standing at the pinnacle of Mount Everest, the highest point on earth, any step you take in any direction is a step downhill. So too with Jesus. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away. The point of the verse is nothing's better than Jesus and Jesus never changes. So where on earth or beyond earth else would we go? It's telling us that in all those qualitative ways that matter most, Jesus never changes. What does that mean for us? I already read through the four points I want to draw out from this text. Let's work through them together now. First, because Jesus never changes, we can expose devastating change. Verse 8 says in full, Because Jesus never changes, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. The writer of Hebrews is warning against a certain species of legality and ceremonial devotion that that may have had the appearance of spirituality, even deep spirituality, but is actually a distraction from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the context. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thus, do not be led astray. Specifically, do not get bored with the free grace of Christ and start seeking out supplemental avenues of acceptance and favor with God. Grace strengthens the heart. Be devoted to grace, not foods. Do not be led astray. What this verse warns you against are not the minor disagreements between Christians that come up from time to time about secondary details of our faith and practice. This is about the core. This is about being led astray from Jesus. Being led astray from grace. And that is the test. The test in the verse is that we are led astray from grace because that is the telltale sign, an assault or a minimization or a dimming in any sense of the grace of God. When salvation becomes anything less than 100% by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, a devastating change has occurred. The gospel in its purity has been lost. Because salvation, 99.9% by grace and 0.1% by your own works will fail you 100% of the time. It's all Jesus. It's all Christ and Christ alone. When we have come to Christ, we have come to Mount Zion's peak, and it is higher than Mount Everest. I actually had the privilege to see uh, Mount Everest with my own eyes several years ago. No, I was not climbing it. Um, I was in Nepal flying on a very small, very rattling plane, And I had to contort my body to twist around and catch just this fleeting glimpse and say, there, I saw Mount Everest. And it was okay. You know, 
It's a lot of mountains there. It was like, that one's Everest. Okay. But here's the thing. Everest is not really the highest of all places. Not in the ways that really matter. Because at the end of the day, who cares that it's the highest elevation? Jesus is the highest place. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. If you have grown cold in your love for Him, if you've begun to drift in your devotion to Him, if if you're considering it now and you're shocked by how far you've slid, understand this. Jesus hasn't changed. Have you? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Secondly, because Jesus never changes, we can experience liberating change. Verses 10 to 12 Read, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now this is referencing... Old Covenant ritual, the specific ritual in view seems to be the one of Leviticus 16, which was the special duty of the high priest of Israel. In in the seventh month of the year, it was his task to slay a bull first, making atonement for his own sins. He would then uh, symbolically bathe. He would wash himself in order to be ceremonially clean. Two goats then would be set before him. On the one, he would lay his hands and confess the sins of of the people. That would be sent out into the wilderness, symbolically bearing them away. The other goat would be killed as a sacrifice for the people. That goat's blood sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat in the holies of holies. And unlike the other sacrifices, the text mentions this, unlike the other sacrifices which the priests would be allowed to actually then eat the remains of as a sort of income and subsistence, this once a year high sacrifice was so holy they took it outside the camp and they burned it. Now, sometimes people think that all of that was was plan A, all this ancient Israelite sacrificial intricacy. But what this was, was a preview, a type and a shadow, a preparation for God's actual plan A, Jesus Christ, the high priest who offered himself up as the ultimate sacrifice of atonement. Jesus is nobody's plan B. He is the key to every promise and every picture in the Hebrew Scriptures. Every high priest that lived and died pointed to a greater high priest to come who didn't need to make an offering for his own sin or be purged of anything unclean in him. Every bull and every goat sacrificed. Every time the sins were ceremonially laid on the scapegoat and sent out into the wilderness. Because it had to happen year after year after year. As gracious as it was, there was still the sense where it cried out, this isn't enough. This isn't forever. Send it outside the camp. But it's not enough. There has to be something better. There had to be something more. God had to send plan A. The better priest offering himself as a better sacrifice. The cross of Christ where the God-man was crucified for us. And that crucifixion notably took place outside the city. Just like 
the sacrifice was carried out and burned. The connection in verse 12 is plain. (coughs) So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. The ancient sacrifices were already dead when they were taken out and burned. Jesus was very much alive when they nailed Him to the cross. More than mere death, He suffered for us. More than mere physical crucifixion, as though there's anything really mere about that. But even more than that, Jesus suffered God's wrath there for our sins. His own Father poured it out. Isaiah 53 says that it pleased the Lord to bruise Him, that He was numbered among the transgressors, that He was crushed for our iniquities. Put in simple terms, Jesus suffered on the cross what it would have taken you eternity to suffer in hell. The infinite wrath of an immutably holy God. And this He did, still verse 12, to sanctify the people. He did it to clean us, to set us apart and make us holy. It was there in that picture of the high priest washing himself. But our better high priest didn't wash himself. He washed us. Do you realize that if you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, Jesus knows every detail of every sin you've ever committed even better than you do? Not only because His divine knowledge and memory is aware of all things, but because He's suffered for your sins in a way that you'll never have to. He knows the depths of each one of your sins deserved because He personally suffered it for you on the cross. But here's the glory. He loves you. He loved you before it. He loved you through it. He loved you after it. He loves you right now because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And the verse ends by saying that He did it through His own blood. The point of that is not that the hemoglobin of Jesus had magical properties. There's a scene in that old movie Ben-Hur where where the blood of Jesus literally washes down from the cross into a river which flows into a leper colony and they're all healed. Moving scene. Terrible theology. (laughs) The emphasis is nothing like that. Why bring up the blood of Christ? Because of the connection to the mercy seat on the day of atonement, seven times the blood sprinkled to signify the acceptance of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And even that you had to do again and again and again every year, but not Jesus. Here, Hebrews 9, verses 12 to 14, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus entered once for all. Jesus made full eternal atonement. Jesus never changes. Now I say that because Jesus never changes, we can experience liberating change. What does that mean? The first liberation is simply this. Our sins are forgiven. We're free from guilt. 
And there's a difference between merely having your sins overlooked and having them actually atoned for. If they were merely overlooked, well, they might be looked upon again. Our freedom might be temporary because our deliverance would be incomplete. But that's not the gospel. The gospel says our sins are actually gone because they've been fully paid for. They simply don't remain. They've been obliterated through the death of Christ. Christianity is not a second chance at life. Christianity is not a do-over. Christianity is Jesus paid it all. He did it all for me. And that's the second liberating truth when it's applied to your life because that's the, fruit, the truth that frees you from the power of sin as well as the guilt. When your own record is what you believe you'll be judged by, sin laughs in your face and shames you into despair. But when Jesus puts the cross like a dagger through sin's heart, you're the one who laughs with joy. And watch how freedom reigns in a heart that claims that truth. That's the place where you actually start to grow and walk away from sin and become more and more like Him in your own personal life. You can be free from the sinful patterns you're trapped in because your Savior never changes. You can let go of things you're terrified to lose and trust Jesus completely because Christ will never leave. You can give up the stressed out habits you run to to make yourself feel okay because you can know Jesus will always be here for you with His grace, with His comfort, with His hope, with His peace, with everything you need that He will never let you down like every false Savior you could run to always will. In whatever way it looks like for you, here's the truth you need. You can change because Jesus never does. Third, because Jesus never changes, we can endure painful change. Verse 13, therefore let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. The cross is a strange symbol for religious devotion, let alone for our affection. The cross is a grotesque place of execution to rival the guillotine or a hangman's noose, if not surpass them. The Jews called it a curse. The Romans called it a shame. To those in Christ, it is our glory. And it is a call to arms. It was Jesus Himself who said, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. What does it mean to bear the reproach He endured? It means at least three things for us. First, it means we will follow Jesus wherever He leads. There will come moments in life when faithfulness to the unchanging Jesus means painful change for you. Embrace it. Because if it's Jesus changing you, it will be for your good and for His glory, no matter how painful the process. Make the choices. Repent the sins. Leave behind the old. Walk in the new and different way because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that for us. Secondly, it means we are never ashamed of Jesus and all that He's done. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I mean, bear the reproach of my Lord? Be treated even a fraction of the way that He was treated? 
We think of it as a deep trial. Maybe we should count it a high privilege. Tradition tells us Peter was martyred by being crucified upside down because he counted a death like Jesus, not a thing to be ashamed of, but a privilege he didn't feel ready to accept. That turns our exception upside down, but that's because the gospel always turns the world upside down. Third, what does it mean for us? It means that we embrace suffering as a high calling and deep identification with Christ. It is not that through our own suffering we gain merit or participate with Christ in what he did for us on the cross. Those lines must be absolutely clear. Salvation must be 100% by grace. But through suffering, not only is there sanctifying change, there is increased appreciation for Christ and his sufferings for us. And if you think I say that lightly, you are dead wrong. I would never say that lightly. We are treading on the holy ground of the solidarity of Jesus in the sufferings with his people in their suffering. We need to take off the sandals of any sort of glib explanations or minimizations of the brutal sufferings that some of Christ's people will and are called to endure. But when it comes, lean hard into the cross of Christ. Lean hard into the love of Jesus. Don't fall away. Fall into Him and find that underneath are the everlasting arms. If the Lord takes you to a place of poverty in your life, remember your Savior had nowhere to lay His head. Treasure what He did for you. The King of Heaven became homeless for you. And be reminded that because He did, you have a forever home with Him. If the Lord takes you to a place where the sickness in your body makes it hard to even breathe, remember how hard it was for Jesus to draw breath upon the cross. He did that for you. He did that for you so that you could one day let out a contented sigh that says, I'm home, I'm free, the race is run. I breathe in the grace and the presence of God. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Learn to use your suffering to preach the gospel to yourself. And while your suffering will not disappear, you will find Jesus in them. And having found Him, He will make all the difference. Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy, Christian sisters, young women forced to stand exposed before cruelly grinning concentration camp guards later reflected on how the Lord stirred her mind to the shame Christ endured, exposed on the cross, and in that moment, she loved him all the more. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured But let us also keep going to the fourth and final observation from this text that at this point explains how we could possibly say what was just said and mean it. Fourth, because Jesus never changes, we can expect glorious change. Because verse 14 reads, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. How can a person make costly life decisions for the sake of the kingdom? How can a person with a terminal diagnosis know it is not death to die? 
How can we endure ridicule from our closest friends and family for how far we've taken that whole Jesus thing they thought was just going to be a phase? How can a person with deep-seated issues of of greed or lust or anger or shameful regret say, I will deny myself for the sake of Christ. I will cut myself off even from my own desires if they are contrary to His will because I will decrease and He must increase. How can anyone live like this? It's because we've been given a whole new zip code that comes with a whole new set of priorities. And it flips the script on what actually matters. For here, we have no lasting city. A Christian doesn't really have a hometown anymore unless you count the one that he's walking toward. The one that lies just beyond the horizon of this life but is like a magnet pulling us there, pulling us home. We seek the city to come. This is all going someplace. This all gets somewhere. Or rather, we should say, this all gets to someone. Because the city to come, pictured at the end of Scripture, has no sun and has no temple. Christ is the sun. Christ is the temple. Christ Himself is the city we seek. He is its light. He is its life. The gospel should make us people who care deeply about this world, who care deeply about this life and the needs of this life and the struggles. But there is a gospel restlessness we should have, like the final hours of a late night road trip after a thousand mile drive. I'm almost home. I'm almost there. Having followed him outside the camp and bearing a reproach like his, we will be welcomed one day into his city and partake of a glory like his. And yes, it is a city. I don't know if there will be a sign or not out back saying what's not allowed in the city, but I do know the rules because we're told the rules of Christ's city, no more tears, no more sin, no more cancer, No more heart attacks, no more car crashes, no more wars, no more death, brokenness, struggle, sickness, any of it. No more curse. And that will be good. That will be profoundly good. We might weep for joy over that, but brothers and sisters, that's not even what's best. What's best is Christ. We will have Christ. Being with Jesus will be better than being finally fully healthy. Better than being finally fully home. Better than seeing the most loved of loved ones, which you may have lost already and may have preceded you to the city. The best things we could imagine will simply be the subsidiary details to fully knowing and being fully known by Jesus Christ our Lord. We are citizens of a city to come. And just like earthly cities have their own accents, so too the city to come. When we gather and we praise, when a congregation like this that has trials and has sorrows in its midst sings the way we've sung, the accent of Zion is on your lips. Just like when you hear a Texas drawl when you're in downtown Seattle 
or someone in downtown Mount Vernon has a thick Brooklyn accent, you know that person isn't from around here. So too, the accent from Zion says, I am from around here, but this is no longer my home. And Zion's accent is thickest when praising God through suffering. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come where the same Jesus who never changed for us here will never change for us there, even as we are changed into His glorious likeness and are with Him forever, world without end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise Christ, the unchanging one. We praise the grace that flows to those in Him. We praise the benefactor of our salvation. O Lord, I pray for anyone who needs to repent of sin in their life, maybe deep sin, a habitual habit. O Lord, help them to change because Jesus never does. Lord, I pray for any going through times of suffering, that they would be able to endure because Jesus will never change even when their prognosis does. Lord, I pray that we would all look forward and cling to the change we will experience one day in Christ, the glorious change of the old world giving way to the new, the temporary giving way to the eternal, dust giving way to glory. We know it will happen. We pray that Jesus would return and make all things well. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.